Um, as a church family, if you're new with us, we are in uh, the book of Daniel. It's a book written about 2,600 years ago by the prophet, most likely the prophet Daniel, um, written in about 550 BC. Uh, I am going to read chapter 5 this morning for us. It's on page 695 in the black Bibles around the room. Or if you don't have a scripture journal, there, there's a little round table in the back corner over here that has an ESV scripture journal uh, with all of the, the words of Daniel on the left-hand page pages and then uh, blank pages, line pages on the right-hand side. So you can just make notes. You can, uh, we would love for you to have one of those and to take one of those with you. Um, no strings attached whatsoever. It's a great way to interact with God's word. But we're in Daniel chapter five this morning. And I just want to read this text before us. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father or predecessor, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, he commanded that they be brought, that the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the, lamp, the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, or in whom is the spirit of God. The Aramaic here is uh, it's ambiguous on that note. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him, Daniel, and... King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king, the king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I've heard of you that the spirit of the gods or the spirit of God is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, 
Let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence, the hand was sent. From God's presence, the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the, man, of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. This is God's word. Father, would you open it to us? Though ancient, would we, uh, would we learn from it and apply it to our lives today? Holy Spirit, do this for us. Give us understanding. Make much of Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. So in chapter five, right out of, right out of the gates, we're introduced to a new, a new character in the story. We've got a new king of Babylon, Belshazzar, who's actually the last king of Babylon. And, and what's wild about chapter five is that he comes and goes in just the length of one chapter. But it's clear that this Belshazzar is different than his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, so while Belshazzar here is partying with his royal officials, um, a human hand appears out of nowhere on the walls of this giant uh, court, this giant banquet hall. And he, in this moment, and the people with him, they panic and, and call in these wise men, and the wise men, they can't interpret it. And so this queen comes and says, hey, I know somebody way back when who can interpret dreams and give you these meanings. And his name is Daniel. He's an old man by this point. And so uh, he is invited in, and he interprets this, this meaning. And what we learn in chapter five, what we just read is that God has judgment in store for Belshazzar. 
That's what is coming. He's got judgment in store, not just for the king, but also for Babylon. And, and so though Belshazzar here is at the pinnacle of human achievement and wealth and human glory, he is an unrepentant, proud fool. And he will be judged. Written about 2,600 years ago, we may ask the question, does this really have application for my life? And we do have something significant to learn or remember here, and it's this, that humble people embrace repentance, but hardened people will be identified, weighed, and judged. Humble people embrace repentance, but hardened people will be identified, weighed, and judged. Uh, Martin Luther is known as the catalyst for the Protestant Reformation in 1517. He was a Roman Catholic priest, a German, uh, who began to, to read his Bible. And as Luther read, he noticed some sharp differences between the Roman Catholic doctrine of salvation and uh, what his Bible was teaching him about the way of salvation. And so Luther, what he did was he tacked these things called the 95 Theses, these 95 points of observation onto this church bulletin board in Wittenberg, Germany. And, it, and in those those days, the front doors of the church were actually the community bulletin board. And, and so um, some people think that this was kind of a rebellious act meant to overthrow Catholicism, but he wasn't trying to do that at all in this moment. This was a perfectly normal way of him wanting to engage his, his colleagues in debate, his fellow priests in debate about these observations that he was making as he was reading scripture. And he, he was in particular, he was finding something in the book of Romans in our New Testament. Testament, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, that was rocking his entire world. Romans 1, 16 and 17 says that Paul is writing to the, Rome, the Christians who are in Rome, and he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, the people of God, but also to the Greeks. Also, it's opened up, this, power, this powerful gospel is opened up to all of the people of the world. And he said, for in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for our faith. That means that it produces faith in us, that draws us into the kingdom of God, and then we continue to feed and nourish ourselves on this power move of God, this goodness of God, the mercy of God for sinners, we continue on just believing and resting on it and nourishing ourselves by it. And then he quotes Habakkuk and he says, for, the, for it is written, the righteous shall live by their faith. The righteous shall live by their faith. So the very first of Martin Luther's 95 points, 95 uh, theses here is famous. And this is what Luther wrote. First point, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed, his will was that the entire life of believers be a lifestyle of repentance. Now, when I say the word repent, does it come to you? Does it have the feel of a positive word or a negative word? When I say the word repent, are you like, oh yeah, I'll get in on that? Or are you kind of like, back away slowly. I need to think this through a little bit. Just real quick, I'd love an honest show of hands. If you think, when, when I say repent, do you, is it positive? Raise a hand if you think it's positive. You guys are so holy and righteous and awesome. <laughs> 
This room is like, this room is a bit of a mixed bag. Like when we hear this word, we kind of go, like we have a, we, we, depending on the tradition that we've grown up in or how we understand this word, there's, there's, there is some baggage for us to unpack. Um, our English word repent comes from the Greek word metanoio which means to change one's mind. You may have heard that repentance means you're walking this direction and then to repent, I turn this direction. We think about repentance primarily in the way of action, but repentance at its root, really it begins in the mind. It means changing one's mind. That's what is at the root of repentance. And so when we change our minds about the goodness and the righteousness and the character and the power and the love of God and his son, Jesus Christ, what typically follows is an overhaul of our entire life. Our lifestyle does change, but so much of that, nearly all of that, actually begins with a change or, in, in the language of Romans 12, a renewed mind. So when our minds are renewed, we begin to look at life differently. Our worldview changes. We begin to show up differently. We love people sacrificially. We open up our resources generously. We talk about the way of Jesus boldly. Selfish, beastly ways become bitter to us and transform into this uh, a sweet, uh, self-giving, beautiful way of life, typically. And it's important for us to know that as we follow Jesus, trouble and trauma and trial still come, but the way that we live through these things is seasoned with a new perspective. It's seasoned with a new heart, seasoned with humility, with admission of weakness uh, and dependence on God's strength, with self-giving, a self-giving lifestyle. And so what begins as transformation in our minds actually ends up transforming everything. It transforms all of life for us. It's crucial for us to understand that, uh, that Jesus' literal first word when he embarked to save, on this mission to save multitudes of guilty sinners and give them his grace and, give, and name them and give them a seat as family members around his table, the very first word on this mission was the word repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king of the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so let this hopefully do some rearranging work in your own heads that there's something about the word repent that is glorious and that is good and that is true and that is beautiful and that is meant to be embraced. Daniel in, in the text in chapter five and his buddies, they're, they're living in this beastly enemy nation as a defeated people. Everything has been destroyed for them, their way of life, their place of worship, their family members have been killed. They've been drug off 550 miles into modern day Iraq. And now they're living, serving this enemy nation, not sure of what their physical futures look like. And the reason that they're here in Babylon at this time and place is because the southern kingdom of which they were a part of, Judah, would not repent and change their minds and trust God alone with their futures. And so after literally centuries of warnings, God uses beastly Babylon to conquer these Judahites and to bring them 
to a place of understanding their foolishness, and yet they still would not. They were so, so many of them were so hard-hearted. And so as we're in this text in the present moment in Daniel 5, they're being judged by God, and Babylon is the means of God's judgment. And even in this, God has not abandoned them. And so Daniel in chapter one opens with this conquering of Jerusalem by Babylon's king, Nebuchadnezzar. He ruled for about 43 years. And the first four chapters of Daniel surprise us with how God treats Nebuchadnezzar. By the end of chapter four, which Trevor taught last week and did such an excellent job on, we're left wondering if in fact Nebuchadnezzar came to repent and worship Yahweh and be saved. Like that's the tension that the author means to leave us with at the end of chapter four. Even him? Are you serious? We don't know for sure. The text doesn't actually tell us, but it leads us in that direction and it certainly leaves us with that tension And so as we uh, come to chapter five, without warning, uh, the most powerful man in the world is dead and gone. And there is a new king on the throne and his name is Belshazzar. And he's quite a bit different. And God deals with him actually differently than he dealt with Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Notice, uh, I, I think this is right to notice, almost everything in chapter five is abrupt. It just, it's like, okay, see you Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, I guess. And like from the way that it begins to the way that it ends, uh, to the words of judgment that Daniel issues to Belshazzar, um, the, 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 the death of two kings uh, here in chapter five um, and the introduction of another king and another entirely different kingdom it just, uh, it, it takes so much, I think, for granted. Uh, Daniel, uh, spe- he, he skips at least three kings between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar too. He just doesn't, like, they just apparently don't exist. And so as good Westerners, this is not how we do historical biography, right? It's, it's frustrating to us at times because the way that we do biography is different. But listen to what a commentator on Daniel says, Dale Davis. He says, it's surprising when the narrative leaps from the reign of Nebuchadnezzar to the very end of the Babylonian empire to the last night on which its last ruler was killed. But that's not fair if we read it like that for our narrator is not giving us a history of the Babylonian empire but he's giving us a tract for nourishing Israelite faith. We're recipients of this, but this was being written to those who were in exile at that time. This is an account that is meant to nourish their faith and teach them without a doubt that God has not left you. He is still present in beastly Babylon. So for us as readers of the scriptures, rather than trying to force Daniel into what we regard as good history telling and what, what we regard as good storytelling, we need to accept this narrative as it is and understand it on, come to it on on its terms, which is how the Bible works anyways. We need to always be coming to the scriptures on the scriptures terms, not on our terms, not reading our lens into the scriptures, but letting the scriptures read us and inform our view. Uh, Daniel comes to us as the word of God because God interacts with the world on his terms, which 
always has truth and it always has love and it has the way that, that God interacts with his world. It has equity and mercy. He has justice at hand, righteousness and goodness in this core of how God relates to humanity. And the story of the world, the story of us, the story of humanity is that we rejected God, which is why our world is fractured and which is why what, this is why our world is suffering as well. Things are beastly and broken, not just because Adam and Eve did a thing way back when, but because our hearts too are bent in a similar direction, the direction that is inclined to reject God and reject repentance. But when we return to God at his invitation, when we return to him at his initiative to trust Jesus, when we repent, the image of God in us, though it's marred and though it's corrupted by sin, begins this process of restoration, begins this process of renewal. God gives his people new hearts. Last week, uh, the big idea in view from chapter four was that God is in control and we are not. And so chapter five takes this lesson even further for us this morning. And so here is a repeat of what we have to learn from chapter five. Humble people embrace repentance, but hardened people will be identified, weighed, and judged. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. I wanna ask, which one do you wanna be? Like, which one do you, which, which one is, like, are you eager for? To be humble or to be hardened? I want to ask, which one are you? Like, in your present state. Maybe even a better question is, which one are you trending toward? Like, the, the fruit of your life, the fruit of your words, the way you're showing up in relationship. Are you trending toward hardness or are you trending toward humility? Proud hearts lead to hardened people. Pride in the heart leads to the hardening of a person. We don't actually learn until the very end, the, the very last two verses of Daniel chapter five, that Babylon is actually under siege when this party that Belshazzar is throwing, they're under siege when this is going on. Um, but we read that a, a king and a thousand of his lords and his wives and his concubines, so there are thousands of people in this opulent, great hall. They're eating and they're drinking. He threw, verse one, he threw a feast for them and, they, and he's drinking wine in this elevated position in front of everybody. Daniel makes a point right in verse one of chapter five to tell us that Belshazzar is drinking wine in front of everybody. He's throwing caution to the wind and the insinuation is that he's three sheets to it, right? A lot of cups are required if you're partying with that many people and inviting that many people to come and to drink with you. If you've ever spent any amount of time in the bars or ragers, you know that people get absolutely crazy. Just a hundred of them in a bar get absolutely crazy. Imagine 3,000 of them in this Babylonian nation. And so he needs some extra cups and he gets this bright idea to bring in these golden vessels that, that his, uh, his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had uh, taken from this temple in Jerusalem. These were holy items that were set apart to be used for the sake of worship in Israel. And, and Nebuchadnezzar took these items out of the temple when, they, when he destroyed Jerusalem decades earlier. 
And so in the Babylonian point of view, in, in, in Belshazzar's mind, this sacrilege was just more proof that God was impotent, that God was really the real loser. And so by demeaning and desecrating God's vessels, Belshazzar was demeaning God himself. He was dismissing Yahweh as a loser. It's like breaking into a person's home and throwing all of their junk out onto the street. Like when you mistreat a person's property, you're actually mistreating that person themselves. You're demeaning them. One writer says that Belshazzar was not merely a drunken slob, but he was a profane slob. He was an unrepentant fool, and he was about to get owned in this showdown. He didn't have any idea it was coming, but there is a showdown coming between the gods of Babylon and God Most High. And so in the pride of Belshazzar's heart, he felt that he was completely secure. A fool who is drunk on power and drunk on wine. At the time of this, uh, this event, Babylon was this pinnacle city of human achievement. You can see that uh, the, the layers of walls in this photograph on the screen, it was an absolute architectural masterpiece. Babylon was home to the famed hanging gardens of Babylon, which we don't have an archeological record of, but they've been written of throughout history and they were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The Euphrates River actually flowed through the city of of Babylon and not only watered these gardens, but they also provided fresh water for all of the people and all of the livestock within this massive city. And so uh, crops and food would also be, uh, could be produced because of the water source and the rich field and the tracts of land inside the city walls. Uh, they could produce food from inside the city so that sieging armies could not starve them out as they had done to Jerusalem. That's the way that they ended up conquering Jerusalem. History tells us that Persia was sieging Babylon for two and a half years, trying to overtake this city and conquer this nation. The Babylonians, in Belshazzar's view, they're doing just fine. Let the Persians do what they're going to do. They're outside the city walls. They can't get in here. And part of the wonder of this city was its walls. In some places, these walls were 350 feet high. Additionally, they were 87 feet wide. Just massive. And they had these, this structure of both inner walls and outer walls. What you're seeing on the screen here is the Ishtar Gate. It's actually in Berlin, Germany. This is a real photograph. You can go and see it today. It's been reconstructed, excavated, and reconstructed in uh, Berlin. This is one of the inner gates of the city, and it's one of the smaller gates. Uh, this city, we need to understand that, that Babylon was not crude. Babylon was majestic. It was a pinnacle of human achievement. It was opulent. It was intimidating. It was gorgeous to look at through these different colored bricks and all of these mosaic pieces and all of the intricacy and the, the artwork. And so this architecture of Babylon actually presented Belshazzar the opportunity for this careless and foolish sense of security, which is what human achievement does to us, right? Human achievement gives us this sense of we're untouchable. 
Nothing's going to get me, right? Good athletes can be cocky. Why? Because they believe what the crowds are saying about them. They believe what uh, the newspapers are writing about them. And celebrities, we know, like we've all heard stories, they can be some of the most petty people on the planet. Uh, um, Politicians in high office can break the law and get away with it until they don't. And, and teens take really big risks because they think they're invincible. Uh, I almost got expelled from my Christian high school here in Post Falls uh, because I thought that I could smoke pot and get away with it and give some to my friends in school. And I ended up getting caught for that. That's part of my story. If you don't know me, I've got a pretty rugged backstory uh, to say the least. Uh, But I I even lied to Pastor Joe, who was the principal of the school, uh, to get out of being expelled from the school. I told him that I had a conversion experience like at a camp. So this is like what's going on in my heart as a high schooler. I use God in order to get out of this consequence. And I did get out of it. No repercussions for it. But the point of saying that is I was a complete fool, complete, to the bottom. Um, But like Nebuchadnezzar, God had mercy on me. Uh, And for reasons I don't actually know, like I can't point to a reason why I was spared. Uh, I was spared. Some of us in this room, we have suffered by our own hands because we have cultivated big heads, we've cultivated proud hearts, we've cultivated unteachable spirits. Proud hearts have a tendency to think that they are untouchable, so they become unteachable. Unteachable hearts are always, always in danger of becoming hardened hearts. And hardened hearts are in grave danger. In our New Testament, uh, the writer of Hebrews in chapter three, he says, he gives this warning to the church. He says, watch out brothers and sisters so that there will not be in any of you, he's writing to the church, an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Watch out. But he gives a remedy. He says, but encourage each other daily while it's still called today so that none of you is already hardened by sin's deception. The writer is saying, like, watch out, take notice, guard your heart above all things, because for from the heart flows the wellspring of our lives. And you can't just do this in isolation as an unteachable person. You actually have to be embedded in community so that there are people around you to encourage you and so that you can be a person around another who encourages them so that we will not be deceived by the deceitfulness or hardened by the deceitfulness of sin's deception. And so to be unteachable for us means that at a fundamental level, you trust mostly in yourself. That's what it means to be unteachable, that we trust mostly in ourselves and it is deadly to the soul. It is deadly to our relationships. It is deadly to our communities and our churches. Jonathan Edwards, a famous theologian and pastor in New England in the 1700s, he said, he said this, he said, pride takes many forms and shapes, one under another, so they're layered. They encompass, encompass the heart like the layers of an onion. When you pull off one, there's another underneath. Therefore, we have, we, we have need to have the greatest watch imaginable over our hearts with respect to this matter and to cry most earnestly to the great searcher of hearts for his help. 
And he ends the quote by saying this, he that trusts his own heart is a fool. He that trusts his own heart is a fool. There's a different way though. There is a different way. It's the way of humility. It's the way of teachability. It's the way of posturing ourselves in a place where we can receive from God and we can receive from the people around us. Proverbs 15, the fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom and humility comes before honor. Or Proverbs 18, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty or proud, but humility comes before honor. Ephesians, in our New Testaments, Paul says to the Ephesian church, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Paul writes to the Colossian church and says to this church, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts and kindness and humility, meekness and patience. Or Jesus' disciple Peter He writes to an exiled church, they're suffering. He says, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Why? Because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And as we read in Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar is proud in his heart, and he's shockingly unrepentant. He refuses to humble himself, and so God will humble him. The Proverbs teach us that pride goes before destruction and a proud spirit before a fall. We also learn from Daniel chapter 5 that hardened people will not humble themselves, but they will be humbled. Hardened people resist humbling themselves, but they will be humbled. We actually get two really popular phrases in our culture from Daniel chapter 5. One is, you've heard this phrase, the writing's on the wall. I saw it, the writing's on the wall. Something bad is about to happen. It comes from Daniel chapter 5. The writing is on the wall. Another one is his knees knocked together. When somebody is, uh, was, is afraid and fearful and their knees give out, when you say that their knees knocked, that actually comes from Daniel chapter 5 verse 6 too. Um, there's an artist, and it'll, it'll be on the screen here. Uh, as Belshazzar drinks and parties, he sees something that is not a result of his intoxication. This may be hard to see on the screen, but there's a figure in dark um, in black at the center there. That is Daniel. Belshazzar is depicted on the ground. There's these massive tables in this courtyard, and there are um, cups and drinks and plates spilled on the floor, and people are scattered. They're actually exiting this open air courtyard. On the left-hand side, you can see this glow of writing way up high, massive on this wall. And on the right side, you can see this lampstand, which in in his depiction is actually the menorah. It's the lampstand from the temple uh, that is actually, uh, this writing is opposite that. And so there's all kinds of sacrilege and and use of uh, Israel and Judah's, Yahweh's um, instruments of worship being, being used here now to uh, praise gods of silver and of gold and of bronze and of wood. This writing that they see on this wall is a pronouncement of God's judgment. And we read in this text that it drains the color from Belshazzar's face. It shocks him in his mind. It steals the strength in his legs. And so we can, we can just infer here that this is the mightiest man in Babylon and this presence of God, this presence of this human hand and this message shocks him to his core. He's likely having a panic attack. In this moment, if you have experience with panic attacks, you know just how frightening they are. 
and he calls out loudly. It's interesting in the text that the author says he calls loudly for the enchant. Hey, get in here. Like, we need help. Uh, he calls these enchanters and these magicians in and nobody, none of them can read this writing on the wall. And so the panic in him grows. But uh, maybe the... Uh, we, we read the queen um, here in the text, but this could be a queen mother from previous administrations, previous uh, kings. Um, she remembered how this Judahite, this old man now, a guy named Daniel, he uh, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods or holy God, um, she says he did some stuff for Nebuchadnezzar way back in the day. I think he's still alive. You should call him. And so they call him and he comes in and he interprets this handwriting correctly. And this king offers Daniel this upgrade in the kingdom along with riches, but Daniel refuses this temptation. And I think that Daniel's answer here is the real gold. You know, he offers to clothe him in purple and give him a gold chain around his neck. But Daniel's answer here is, let your gifts be for yourself. I don't need them. He's a cranky old man at this point. Give your rewards to another. Oh, nevertheless, I'll read it. I'll tell you what it says. It's not going to be good. He, he might be cranky in his old age. It's possible he's probably 70s, 80s here at this point in time. But I think what's more likely in this text is that he understands Belshazzar's contempt for Yahweh. And that is what offends Daniel so deeply. He sees the vessels from the temple scattered all over this court, scattered on the tables and spilled and on the floors. Well, this predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, showed humility and, and teachability. Belshazzar was the opposite here. Proud and presumptuous, arrogant and full of himself. And, and he wasn't merely a drunken slob, but he was a profane slob. And so Daniel offers words. God speaks through Daniel and offers these words of judgment. And this is what we read in Daniel 5, 18 through 31. He says, O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples and nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whoever he would, he killed. Whoever he would, he kept alive. Who he would, he raised up. And who he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought low from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. And he was, this is Nebuchadnezzar, he was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys and he was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven because he was living out in the countryside until... There's a key word here. Until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. God raises up kings and God takes down or tears down kings. And then Daniel transitions in verse 22 and he says, and you his son, you his son, his predecessor, or rather his, uh, the one who came after him, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. You knew this story, you knew of God most high, but you have actually lifted yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you at your command, you and your lords, your wives, your concubines, you've drunk wine from them. You guys are 
partying with these holy items. And then, not to mention, you have praised the gods of silver and of gold and of bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see, which do not hear, which do not know. But the God in whom is your, in whose hand is your breath, that is your life, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. And so Daniel goes on in verse 24, and he says, then from his, from Yahweh's presence, the hand was sent as a messenger to you, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end, which will include Belshazzar too. You have been identified. He sees you. He sees the kingdom. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to, uh, rather, Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. That's another phrase that we get in our culture. Been weighed and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. This is in Aramaic, and Perez is the singular of Parson. If you notice, these two phrases, these two words are actually different. Uh, in verse 24, it says Parson. In verse 28, it says Perez. Perez is the singular of, of this word Parson, and it sounds like the Aramaic word for both divided and the Aramaic word for Persia. So this is likely a play on words here. And so we read in this text that Belshazzar gives this command. Okay, he read it. I'm satisfied with it. And Daniel is clothed with purple. A chain of gold is put around his neck and a proclamation is made about him that he should be the third ruler in in this kingdom of Babylon. But it doesn't matter because Babylon is going to be overthrown that very night. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed. And Darius, or Darius the Mede, received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. This is what's wild. The the way that Babylon was overthrown is that the Persians diverted the course of the Euphrates River, and they crawled and came into the city in the dried-out riverbed and broke into this city. And so while uh, these Babylonians are partying as if they're completely safe, the Persians are infiltrating the city and making their way in. The city is conquered. Belshazzar is killed. The party is over. And so these words ring true here. God is not mocked. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. Belshazzar here, he had human achievement. He had position, he had power, he had wealth. He had it all on his side. But the one who will not be mocked sees him, calls him out, weighs him, and judges his proud and unrepentant heart. We don't know what the difference was in Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar lifted himself up against the God of heaven too. And for some reason, God had mercy on Nebuchadnezzar and he issued justice on Belshazzar. Maybe Belshazzar thought repentance would cost him too much. Maybe he was too self-concerned to consider the mercy of God was actually a thing that he could call out for and receive. And though his story, Belshazzar's story is tragic, we need to understand that tragedies of those long dead 
can still teach us the living if we'll humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Because humble people embrace repentance, but hardened people will be identified, weighed, and judged. While it is today, do not harden your hearts is the word of the Spirit to every person in the present. While it is today, do not harden your hearts. What does it look like to humble yourself and to draw near to God that you may find mercy in your time of need? Um, Daniel draws Belshazzar's attention to Yahweh, to, this, to the holiness of Yahweh, but it was too late. Today, we, we don't have only Daniel, but we have someone far better than Daniel. Daniel was a prophet of God But Jesus is the capital P, prophet of God. He's not only the prophet of God, he's the son of God. He's known in in Daniel, which we'll read in a couple of chapters, as the son of man, this holy one, the king of kings who has been given in Daniel 7, glory and dominion and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him and him alone. His dominion, Jesus's dominion is an everlasting dominion It will not pass away and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And so this is what Jesus asks of you and I. He he calls out to you and I to live from mindsets of repentance. Minds that are willing to change our minds about who God is. A mindset and a heart set too that is continually submitted to Jesus, ready to change our minds according to the Bible according to the scriptures. Our minds aren't just open to any and every idea. Our minds are open to what God says to us through his word. For all who trust Jesus, this is wild. Judgment is not in our future. For all who entrust ourselves, themselves to Jesus, judgment is not in our, it's not in our future. Because when we first trust Jesus, Think about this. Our judgment day gets moved from the future to the past. It gets moved entirely. There's no longer judgment for us because Jesus has been judged in our place. It gets moved from the future out here to our past. And rather than being weighed and found wanting, Jesus of Nazareth has been weighed and found flawless. And all who rejoice in Jesus not only get off of the judgment hook, but we actually get the righteous resume that Jesus earned. And we didn't do a thing to get it. It was all by his grace that he gave it. And what he has earned, what he has done, resurrection, what has happened to him, and what he has earned, glorification, what's coming for him, is also for us too. We long for a day of resurrection where our bodies and our souls will be resurrected to new life with Christ. But we also long for not just resurrection, but also the scriptures promise us glorification. That will be our reward as well. And so may we love and embrace repentance as a pathway to rejoicing in the finished work of Jesus. If there's anything that I really want you to wrestle with coming out of here this morning, it's to wrestle down your understanding of repentance. Repentance is a good news invitation to the soul. To 
come to the Lord Jesus Christ, to let him change our minds. And as our minds are changed about him, he will continue to change our ways. Pray with me. Father, we, uh, we come to you in need. We come to you needing changed minds. There is a great deal of change that has occurred in many of us in this room, and there is a great deal of change that is needing to occur. And it's not needing to occur so that you will love us. It's needing to occur, to occur because you do, because you walk with your people, you sanctify your people. Where there are people here today that that need to come to you and need to not reject repentance. Would you teach them that their work is not to grovel in shame and guilt and fear until they finally feel like they can come to you? But would you teach them, Holy Spirit, that their only move right now is to run to you to find mercy in time of need and they will find it as they cast their cares on you, as they confess their unbelief to you? Lord, you are just, as was read earlier, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Holy Spirit, would you make us alive? Both non-believers, would you draw them into your kingdom today? And also believers, would you continue urging us on in your kingdom? May we never leave the gospel. May we continue to grow in our understanding of it. In Jesus' name, we love you. Amen.